0: That thing never gets old. That's that's just fantastic. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, to Luke chapter 1. You'll find the notes for this morning's message inside your bulletin. Um, This morning we are going to study a a magnificent passage of scripture, a, a spontaneous, as it were, poem coming off of the lips of Mary, the young virgin mother of our Lord, in response to her cousin Elizabeth's um, own song, Luke, the, the fastidious historian, has, has clearly spoken to Mary, most likely, and, and, and got the, the transcript, and we will study this song of praise of Mary, what is commonly referred to as the Magnificat, um, that title coming from the first word in the Latin translation, as you know, the Roman Catholic Church up until the 1950s, used Latin for their Masses. And so when they would read this, the very first word of this song would be Magnificat, or to magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. It's traditionally received that name. The Magnificat, magnifying the mighty and merciful God and Savior. Magnifying the mighty and merciful God and Savior. Um, Let's just dive in by reading Luke chapter 1. 46 to 56. <clears throat> One moment. <clears throat> and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and for behold, from now on, all generations will call me Blessed. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now before we study this psalm itself, we need to notice some of its structure. And if you look in the little light gray box, the first thing to note is this. While Mary doesn't quote from, it seems clear that that she is borrowing the structure or or echoing, if you will, the structure of Hannah's song of praise in First Samuel. In fact, turn to 1 Samuel, take a look at that briefly. Um, we've already commented how Luke, in in telling of the, the birth announcement of John the Baptist, has already given echoes of this same account. In other words, where, where in the Old Testament do we see a, a prophet coming into the world through a miraculous conception? Well, there's a number of examples, but probably the most, the most well-known would be that of Samuel. And so we, we have in, in, in John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, a barren couple. Um, one of the parents goes to the temple. There's an encounter at the temple. There's a promise of dedicating the child to the Lord's service. And there's leaving the temple, and there's a pregnancy. That's the exact pattern followed in the announcement to Zechariah. Hannah, however, that's that's 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah, however, if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, is the first 10 verses record Hannah's prayer of praise. And I think if we read it right now, you'll, you'll see the similarities in structure. As Hannah first starts with what God has done for her, just as Mary does, broadens to how the wonderful things God has done for her, typify the great and wonderful things God does for all people, ending ultimately looking towards a messianic hope in Israel. It's the exact pattern of Hannah. So we'll just read 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, and let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. And she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed or his Messiah. And so back to Luke 1. We'll be turning back to to 1 Samuel. Whereas Mary does not directly quote it it seems very clear to those who study this that clearly she's had these things in her mind and she's borrowing the pattern she's borrowing the structure and what luke wants us to see from this remember the point of luke's writing he wants us to be certain of the accuracy that these things took place and what he's showing theophilus and he's showing an observant jewish reader contrary to the claims of first century judaism that christianity was something new Christianity was some innovation. It was a falsely added claim. What Luke's showing is, no, the events unfolding in the birth of John the Baptist, the events unfolding in the birth of Jesus, they have precedent. These are following the same patterns, the same themes. The notes of the music should already be in your head so when you hear them again, you go, yes, yes, that is how God works. Yes, that sounds familiar. Something like this has happened before. Thus giving credence to the account. Okay, that's the first point. So the song of Hannah is the blank. Old Testament parallel, the song of Hannah. That's, that seems to be what's in Mary's mind. Second, um, form. Mary makes much use of parallelism. That's the blank there. Parallelism. And I give you some of the blanks, but the way Hebrew poetry often works is parallel lines, double lines, where you say two say two things, but you're really talking about one thing. So notice in verse. 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, Mary is not saying her soul's doing one thing, and then completely disconnected, her spirit's doing something else. Now, in Hebrew parallelism, she's clearly talking about the same thing. She's talking about the same state of mind, the same state of joy. Now, it's not to say they're identical, each of the couplets gives information. But in Hebrew, synthetic parallelism, what you get is we're talking about one and the same thing two different ways. We're talking about one state of her heart, one state of her, of her joy. You see that again in 48 and 49. He has looked on me with favor on the lowliness of his servant, for the mighty one has done great things for me. I'm talking about the same thing. Um, verse 51, A and B. He has shown great strength with his arm, He has scattered the proud. How has he shown great things with his arm? By scattering the proud. We're talking about the same thing. It's not two different things. It's one thing spoken of two ways. Or verse 52, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones, and he's lifted the the lowly. Sorry, what we're meant to see is this juxtaposition. Or verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away. Or in verse 55, he has... Um, spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. As he spoke to our fathers, that's one thing, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So parallelism is used extensively throughout this, which is very, very typical of Hebrew poetry. And third and finally, the act overall structure of her song is that of a psalm of praise. Psalm of praise. And this pattern or structure for writing is very, very common in the Psalms. And what happens in a psalm of praise is this. The author begins by praising God or extolling or making some declaration of joy, rejoicing, celebrating in God. And then the rest of the psalm is reasons why. You see that pretty plainly. Mary in the first opening verses, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then the rest of her psalm are reasons why. Reasons why she's rejoicing in God. That's the structure. Very very common pattern. I'll give you just one example. Psalm 34 opens this way. I will bless the Lord of all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. For I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. And then the rest of the psalm goes on with why." Why should we exalt God? Why should we rejoice? Why should we gather together and praise him? So that's the pattern. And what we see as we read through this is we get 10 verbs about what God does. That's the pattern of these description. Why? We're going to see 10 mighty acts of God. And you can see them right there. Verse 48, he looked on her humble estate. Verse 49, he has done great things. Verse 51, he has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty. He has exalted those. He has filled the hungry. He has sent away. He has helped. He spoke. We're not learning as much who God is, although we can learn that by observation, but what we're primarily looking at in this psalm of praise is the great acts God has done. What has God done? The essence, writing James Edwards, the essence of the Magnificat does not consist in its particular language or figures of speech, but in its revolutionary blueprint of divine favor. It is a hymn not of the proud, but the powerless, not of just deserts, but unexpected grace, not a world fully controlled and determined by human powers, but overturned by divine power. God is the subject of nearly every verb, and the verbs are all transitive. They do not declare who God is, but what God does as the powerful deliverer of the needy and oppressed. God does not turn away from want and oppression, but towards both in compassion, rescuing, and in intervention. In most religions, a meeting with God requires the low to ascend high. Sinners need to become saints. The Magnificat reverses all protocol and expectations. A God who is high becomes low. He sees human need and initiates a revolution that reorders reality. The transcendent God intercedes on behalf of a lowly young woman and calls her blessed. The Almighty gives mercy to those who fear him and scatters the strong, the proud, and the rich while filling the hungry and the needy with good things. The reversals of expectations announced in the Magnificat will continue to reappear throughout Luke-Acts. That's absolutely true. Two major themes... Come out of these 10 declarations of who God is. The first is the mighty God, the powerful God. You see that clearly um, in the opening lines. Verse 48 He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Look down in verse 51 He has shown strength or power with his arm, he has scattered the proud. One of the major emphases of what God does is we see his power, his unstoppable, unopposable power. doesn't matter how powerful humans are and what mighty thrones they sit on. God swipes them aside. Remember, as Gabriel said to Mary, nothing shall be impossible with God. The second theme we see, though, is the merciful God who is kind to the humble and the lowly Verse 50, he has mercy on those who fear him. Verse 48, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's fed the hungry. Verse 52, he's exalted those of humble estate. And the contrast is this. On the one hand, we're to stand in awe and shock and wonder at the power of this God and how he deals with his enemies. And that is meant to make even greater the contrast and the wonder that he would show mercy on us. God's mercy and his kindness is all the more wonderful as we see his strength and his power and his utter destruction of his foes. What a marvel. That's what Mary's doing. Her soul is magnifying in the Lord. Magnifying in the Lord. So let's dive in as we look at this. As as Mary first starts with God's greatness demonstrated to Mary, and then we're going to see God's greatness demonstrated to all, and finally God's greatness demonstrated to Israel to Israel. So first, point A, Mary magnifies and rejoices in God, her Savior. Mary magnifies and rejoices in God, her Savior. And that's really the point of the first couplet. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, That word for magnify is really the the driving verb. It's the only verb in this whole sense that's in the present continuous sense. This is is really what's summing up what she's doing. Her soul is magnifying God. To say it another way, she is rejoicing in her spirit, in the God of her Savior. So what what does it mean to magnify God? I mean, that's a pretty actually good translation, to magnify God. We, We sing songs, I magnify you. Well, there's two ways you can think of magnifying, and one is blasphemous and one is worshipful. There's, the, there's magnifying the way a microscope magnifies. And there's magnifying the way a telescope magnifies. I want you to stop and think about this. What does it mean to magnify God? If you magnify God, if Mary is magnifying God the way a microscope magnifies God, that's blasphemy. What's a microscope do? It takes something itty-bitty and tiny and makes it look artificially large. Mary is not taking God. And he's, he's got some glory, but now that Mary's magnifying him, he's that much more glorious. No. There's another way to magnify, and that's the way a telescope works. Telescope takes something that because of distance, because of obstruction, because of the weakness of my eyes, looks small. and helps make it look a bit more like it really is. And that's what Mary's soul is doing. As she is thinking through these truths, as she is wondering and celebrating what God has done for her, as her mind goes over how God has done this for other people, God in the sight of her heart and her mind is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and, bigger and consuming her. That is what it means that Mary is magnifying the Lord. And really, if there's any application for us in this song, I'd say it's that. Is God getting small in your sight? Spend some time, some real time, contemplating what God has done. Rehearsing what he's done for you, what he's done for others, his mighty acts. And, and I believe your soul will begin to magnify God. God will get greater and greater in your sight. So that's, that's the first line. She magnifies and rejoices in God, her Savior. That's an interesting title, God, her Savior. And one of the other things we see in this song is that Mary knows her Bible. This little country girl engaged to the town carpenter knows her scripture. No printing presses. She knows her scripture in a way that puts us to shame. She's quoting here a title for God only found one other place in the Bible. It's in Habakkuk chapter 3. In fact, our song this morning quotes or references it. I wonder how many of you got that reference. Listen to this. I wonder if you can pick out which song we sang alludes to this. Habakkuk three seventeen to 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yeah, we sang that earlier in our opening song after announcements. Mary knows her Bible. I want to note one other thing here, too. Mary needs a Savior. Mary needs a Savior. You know, the temptation, again, I've mentioned this before, is is to make make one of two errors. The one error is to misunderstand these texts and to elevate Mary to a point where she's no longer blessed. She's the one giving the blessing. She's no longer a recipient of grace, but she is a fountain of grace. That's wrong. This text makes that clear. The other side, though, is to then make so little of her, because we don't want to even remotely come close to doing that, that we sort of sideline her. Now, Mary here is clear. She, She has a savior. The notion of the immaculate conception that Mary was born somehow sinless, somehow without original sin, isn't found anywhere in Scripture. And here, she freely admits she takes great joy In God, her Savior. So Mary is a model of faith. Mary is a a magnificent model of faith. We're going to see in a minute that all generations will call her blessed. We should feel free to call Mary blessed. She is a blessed woman. And she's a sinner with a Savior. Amen. She rejoices in God, her Savior. Okay? Why? Point B. For he has looked on her and done great things things. He has looked on her and done great things. Specifically, he's looked on her humble estate. And again, we're seeing more and more of Mary's humility. Mary does not think highly of herself. She knows she's a little country girl. She, she knows that in the economic standing of things, she, she, she's not measured very high. And she is still in awe. Her soul is in wonder and joy that the God of the universe, the God who made the stars, the God who ordains the, the rise and fall of kings has looked to her and on her humble estate and on his servant, literally on his slave. She, 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 she identifies herself as the Lord's slave. You know, we're taught in our culture that it's absolutely essential for people to have a high opinion of themselves. It's absolutely essential for people to feel good about themselves to feel empowered, valuable, I disagree. Mary is blessed precisely because she recognizes she's in a humble and lowly state. Mary is blessed precisely because she recognizes herself as the slave of the living God. Blessedness is not found in in high self-esteem. Blessedness is found in esteeming God highly. And when you esteem God highly, you begin to see where you are rightly. God has looked on her And done great things. Now specifically the great thing God has done for her is what? Given her this miraculous conception. Given her this child who Gabriel told her will rule from the throne of his father David forever. Mary knows God is beginning something special. Beginning something great in redemptive history. Mary's song in fact is a direct response to the miraculous events confirmed by Elizabeth's words. Namely, the supernatural conception of a son who would be called the son of the most high whose kingship would never end, who even in the womb may be addressed rightly as my Lord. Mary's song exclaims that this act of conception has set in motion the decisive eschatological work of God, which is to say she knows this is the beginning of of the major redemptive plans of God in history coming to fruition. She, She knows that, and she's rejoicing in her spirit. God has looked on her low estate. This, by the way, is another close tie-in with with Hannah's prayer. In chapter 1, Hannah praying to God says something very, very similar. She vowed, she's promising God, if you'll just give me a son. This is Hannah in 1 Samuel in verse 11. If you'll just give me a son, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. Look on me in my low estate. Your servant. That's probably one of the strongest verbal parallels between Mary's magnificat and Hannah's prayer and song. To what result then? I, all generations, will call her blessed. All generations will call her blessed. Now this, this harkens back to just a few verses earlier where in verse 45, Elizabeth has just called her blessed three times. Look at verse forty-two. She explained with a loud cry, "Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb." Verse forty-five: "Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoke." And so, echoing off of Elizabeth's blessing of her, calling her blessed, Mary says, "Given what God has done for me in my lowly estate, all generations will call me blessed." Now, again, notice one other thing: Mary does not say, "All generations will invoke my blessing." All generations will call upon me for favor. No, all generations will say Mary was blessed. Mary received grace. Mary got undeserved favor from God. Hallelujah. She does not say all generations will invoke my blessing. In fact, turn turn to Luke 11. Luke 11. Mary is blessed, not because she is in some divine, nearly divine, sinless state. Mary's blessed for the very same reason that people like you and I can be blessed. In Luke eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus is, is speaking and teaching. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. There's a sense in which you can say, how blessed is anyone who hears God's word and keeps it? Now, the the scriptures are, on the one hand, absolutely putting Mary forward as a model of faith, a model for us. Luke wants us to see Mary as a model of the humble, faithful, obedient believer. Amen and amen, and she is blessed for that. And then Jesus, a little later in the book, says, rather, there's even a greater blessing for the one who hears and obeys God's word. So in that context, Mary is blessed. Why? Because she heard and obeyed God's word. And in result, God gave her this high honor. So we should feel free. Say, Mary is a blessed woman. We should be equally free to say, that person who's hearing and obeying God's word is a blessed individual, and so is that person. Amen and amen. Okay. In contrast to what people will call her, She then ends this first section centering on herself and and the the grace of God demonstrated to her by reflecting that his name is holy, which is really a nice poetic way to bring closure. All people will call her blessed, and his name is holy. He is is the God who is unlike any other. He is the God who is set apart from you. This is why you can't compare God to anyone. This is why God says, don't don't make an image of me. Don't, Don't say... This is why those shirts like, God's like Coke, he's the real thing. No, he's not. He's other. He's holy. He's set apart. He's holy God. His name is holy. Okay, that that then leads Mary, as she's thinking about God's great works for her, to consider then the great works God has done to all people. It's while she's thinking about herself and her own experience. She can't help but realize this is exactly the type of thing God does everywhere, and at all times, to all peoples. God's greatness now we see demonstrated to all, to all. And we see first off that he shows mercy and favor to all who fear him. What's the key here of being blessed? What's the key of receiving God's favor? Fear God. Not be born immaculately and sinlessly. Fear God. It's simple and hard. It's open to all, and it's difficult. We want to fear other people, and we want to fear money, and we want to fear fame. Fear is in like, value. Take it seriously and heavily, and really, that's on our mind. And Proverbs seven tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. He shows mercy to all who fear him. And this, what an amazing God. He isn't, he isn't looking for, he isn't, his attention is not grabbed by accomplishments and feats and big thrones and large bank accounts. He's looking for, his mercy is directed towards those who fear him. That can be you. That can be me. That can be any of us. This mercy, the same type of favor that God has shown Mary, is, is available to all who fear him. This is characteristic of who God is. Now, the demonstration of that mercy obviously will be different. But God's favor, God looking to you, God blessing you, God God revealing himself to you is all conditioned. On the one condition, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, which parallels. All generations will call her blessed. And throughout all those generations, this offer of mercy is available to all who will fear him. That's, there's a lot of parallelism going in here. She's going to be called blessed forever through all generations, and throughout those same all generations, there's an offer of mercy on the table for all who will fear the Lord. Now we start looking at some of his power. And the ESV doesn't bring this sound as clearly. Um, it, it drops the ball here a bit in translation, because in verse 49, um, no, no, the ESV's, no. In verse 49, the Lord has done great things." Same verb as in 51. He has per- doesn't work in English very well. He has performed, He has worked, He has done strength or power with his arm. The point is he has accomplished, he has acted. Just as he has done great things for her, he has performed, done, and acted strength with his arm. And then the parallelism okay, how? How, how has he performed strength with his arm? Well, he has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He shows strength with his arm and scatters the proud. And now we get the other side of the coin. Mary has lifted up the blessedness of of being a God-fearer and having God's favor. Now we see the other side of the coin. What if you don't fear God? What if instead you're proud? He scatters them. Again, history of the Scripture is filled with examples. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, why don't you go eat grass for a time? Think of Babel. We're going to build a tower to... Heaven or not. God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. And not just proud in their words. God God sees the heart. He's he's seeing those who are proud in their hearts. He's scattering them. He's cast down, point See the mighty and exalts the humble. And again and again and again in Scripture, we see that. Whether it's choosing David, the the runt of his parents' litter, the little, little shepherd boy, as opposed to the tall and strong or older brother, where it's working through Joseph, again and again and again in Scripture, God has used the low things to cast down the high things. This is, again, why worship this God? This God is not a respecter of persons. Oh, you're a king, are you? God's not impressed. He's looking for those who fear him, and where he finds those who fear him, no matter how humble, no matter how lowly they be, he is able and willing to exalt them. And where he finds pride... No matter how great they are, he casts them down. He's exalted those of humble estates. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He fills the hungry and sends the rich away empty. He fills the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And again, this is all flowing out of what God has done to Mary. She called herself, in verse 48, of humble estate, and we see that same phrase up in 52. He exalts those who are of humble estate. In other words, what God has done to her is not anything different from what he's doing to all people. Now, the specific honor, the specific application of of bearing the Messiah of the virgin birth, yeah, that is unique, not to be repeated, event. But the foundational basis of God turning his favor, God turning his his gaze, God working mightily for a small and significant peasant girl, that's nothing new. That's nothing new. All those who are humble estates God is willing to exalt. That's what the New Testament says. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Humble yourself, he will exalt you in due time. From the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, this is a truism of God. And Mary is expanding from her own experience. I was humble. I was nothing and a nobody, and God looked to me. God exalted me, he's blessed me. And that same blessing, that mercy, is for all who fear him. And anyone in the humble estate, Again, I've I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. There is no one too low. There's no one too small. No one too stupid. No one too despised and rejected. No one too much of an outsider to receive God's mercy. There are far too many people who are too great, too wise, too strong, too rich, too powerful. You can be far too great for God. You can't be far too small for him. He has filled the hungry and sent to the rich away. I'm going to pause for just one moment. Some, some, I'll use the word loosely, Christians, take from this a sort of revolutionary ethic. Some um, feminists and liberal theologians tend to read the Magnificat largely in economic, political, and social terms, whereas traditional theology... Often does not. The language and the imagery of the Magnificat comes from Israel's religious, social, political, and ethnic life and thus includes both the physical and the spiritual. So this notion, you can almost see a Marxist taking this and those who are rich, cast them down. Those who are poor, lift them up, spread the wealth. That's not what's going on here. This is not a call to political action. This is not a call to social Marxism. What's important to note is this. Who's the one who's doing this restructuring? It's God. It's God. God's the subject of nearly every single verb. Mary's song is not a revolutionary call to human action, but a celebration of God's action. Indeed, this very passage, we see God work against those who would take power into their own hands. So, this is a song about standing back and watching God turn things upside down watching God right the wrongs. This is a song with Mary standing back as God gets bigger and greater and bigger and bigger in her eyes. She's looking over the course of history. She's looking at her life. God's grace, God's mercy, God's favor. This isn't a call to arms. It's a call to worship. It's a call to worship. And then, as, as, then here's the flow. Mary starts with her own, her own blessing, her own miraculous favor from God. That she expands into the truisms of how God treats everyone. This is, this is how God is. You read your Bibles. You, you read your Christian biographies. This is who God is. And then we sort of come back around full circle because we end up at Israel. And I was in a chat with Jacob Moore yesterday and he was, why, why does he end there if it's getting broader and broader and broader? Why get narrow at the end? How does that work? He, he, he got the, sort of the flow from one to the many and to all. Well, Because this child that Mary has just conceived, who is he? He's Israel's Savior. And these themes we see of God lifting up the lowly, God demonstrating his power, where do they find their ultimate and perfect fulfillment if not in the incarnation and the life and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God? It's Perfectly natural for Mary. She's broadening out and getting bigger. God's getting bigger to see where this is all headed. And it's headed he's helped his servant Israel God's greatness demonstrated to Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God's greatness demonstrated to Israel. He helps Israel and remembers his mercy to them. He remembers his mercy to them. And ultimately that mercy to Israel is demonstrated in precisely the miracle that has just occurred. Her Supernatural pregnancy is the beginning. Or even really John the Baptist's miraculous conception is the beginning of God working his greatest works of power and mercy. Which which begs one question. In this psalm, we're told in verse 50 that his mercy is for those who fear him. How is it then, if the condition of mercy is to fear God, does God then just sort of unilaterally turn and have mercy on Israel? Are they an exception? No. Think about this again. When God wants to be merciful to Israel, who is the forerunner who goes before the Messiah? John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist do if not call on Israel to fear God? God is going to be merciful to Israel. He's going to be merciful to Israel precisely by calling them to repentance, calling them to fear him, calling them to put themselves in a position where he can show mercy to them. It all fits together wonderfully. God's turning to them in mercy. We saw that in Zechariah when, when all the armies of the world gather around Israel. In Zechariah 12.10, before the Lord goes out to fight for them, what does he do? He pours out his spirit on them. So when they look upon me, upon him whom they have pierced. They will grieve. They will mourn. He puts them in a position of contrition so that then he can be merciful to them. And then he can fight for them. And then he can do mighty deeds for them. There's no conflict here. He has mercy on those who fear him. He's remembered. He'll be merciful to Israel. And the way he'll be merciful to Israel is initially sending John the Baptist, calling people to repentance, contrition, the fear of God. And he does this point B. He keeps the covenant he made to Abraham. The covenant he made to Abraham. Mary, it's another deep insight of Mary. She knows that the fruition of prophecy which she is bearing in her womb ultimately, links not just back to the Davidic covenant, where God promised David a son, but further back through the Davidic covenant, it, it, it pushes back all the way to God's covenant with Abraham. Paul in Galatians makes this point. When God promised Abraham, he promised him three things, land, a blessing, and a seed. Paul says in Galatians 3.16, the promises are made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So in sending the Christ, God is keeping his covenant to Abraham and to the fathers. And before we end, we've got three minutes before we got to get out of here and the kids go downstairs. Remember the donuts. I want you to see these themes played out in Luke's gospel. Because if, this is, if Mary is saying this is true of who God is, then surely in this greatest, final, eschatological events of God, we're going to see that same power and that same mercy in Luke's gospel. I think we do. Turn to Jesus' first public appearance in Luke, Luke chapter 4. Do we see in Jesus one who is kind and humble and Helpful to the weak and the lowly and the outcast, And in Jesus, do we see one who exerts power, taking head-on kings and magistrates fearlessly? I think we do. Luke four sixteen, He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year, the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. What characterized Jesus' ministry? He was coming to proclaim good news to the poor. He was the one who had set captives at liberty, he was the one who would recover the sight of the blind, he was the one who had set at liberty the oppressed, and he would be the one to proclaim the favor of the Lord. You better believe. The things that typified in Mary's pregnancy get continued and find their culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn turn a little bit later in the book. Let's look at two more examples. Chapter, Chapter 19. Does Jesus demonstrate power? You bet he does. This little Jewish carpenter, son of a carpenter, later called the carpenter, rides into Jerusalem We won't read it, but the triumphal entry is in in Luke 19. Rides into Jerusalem with the people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Receiving a king's reception. Oh yes, he demonstrates power. And he immediately goes to the temple, takes control of it, knocks over tables, scatters these proud, wicked men who are turning his father's house into a den of thieves and robbers. Then one final example. Go to to Luke 23. I'll leave here. Luke 23. Again, remember the two big themes. God is the powerful God, and God is the merciful God who helps the outcasts. One of the very last actions our Lord did before his death was to reach down and help one of the very lowest of the low. And the very last things Jesus did. Luke 23, pick it up in verse 39. It's our God, one who helps the humble, the low, the merciful, those who fear him, you better believe. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But The other rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see the difference? One of them, like Mary, recognizing their lowly position, I'm nothing, I'm a nobody, I deserve nothing. Would you, would you be merciful to me? Would you remember me? Here's a proud, arrogant thief on the cross. What does Jesus do? Does he... Does he say, I'm, guys, I'm, I'm busy right now bearing the sins of the world? No. Because Jesus is God incarnate, and because God is a merciful God who takes pity and looks to the humble, and he looks to and he shows favor to the weak, says, truly, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, the themes in Mary's song echo through the book of Luke, and they're, embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole point of this is that we would worship, that God would be bigger in our sight and bigger in our eyes, that we would take joy in worshiping the living God. In Mary's first line, we'll close with this observation, Mary's first line tells us what she's doing is, is exalting, magnifying God, rejoicing in God. Interestingly enough, the first question of the Westminster Confession Catechism, what is the chief end of man? <laughs> to glorify God and enjoy God forever. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for being who you are, a mighty God and a savior. You you are a merciful God to those who fear you. You are merciful to those who are needy, and we need your grace, we need your help, Lord. We are not great, we are not strong, we're not wise. We don't know why you would choose to look upon us. And yet we look to you, and we look to your son, and we, we depend on your grace, and we exult and rejoice in knowing that the God we love, the God we serve, is one who is a Savior. Guard us from pride. Guard us from being those that you would scatter and cast down. Oh, Lord God, be magnified in our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. And remember, children, straight downstairs for those donuts. You are dismissed.